there's always a FinReg Angle, the podcast providing you with the latest news and commentary on financial regulation. Brought to you by Global Custodian. Hello. Um, today, I've got a bit of a different introduction. Uh, in keeping with our theme of the podcast, I've asked ChatGPT to write the introduction for this podcast episode. So here we go. Welcome to our podcast on financial regulation. Today, we are joined by two experts in the field, Virginia and Sean. Financial regulation is an essential component of the financial system as it helps maintain stability and protect customers. With the global financial crisis of 2008 still fresh in our minds, it is clear that regulation of financial market and institutions is more critical than ever. Throughout this podcast, we'll be discussing various aspects of financial regulation, including the role of regulators, the impact on the financial industry and consumers, and the challenges of enforcing regulation in a rapidly changing financial landscape. Join us as we delve deeper into the world of financial regulation with Virginia and Sean. How was that? It's <laughs> very, very professional. Yeah, not quite as slick as, uh, as as when I just do it off off the cuff. But I also asked it to write a joke about BTF, Bitcoin ETF applications, and this was actually very good. So, why did the Bitcoin ETF refuse to cross the road? I don't know. Because they were waiting for the green light from the SEC. Oh, <laughs> it's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> I also asked it to do the outro, so uh, you can expect uh, more more chat GPT fun. Joe, I'm becoming one of those intolerable people that starts using it once and then spends hours on it and then shares it with everyone and expects everyone to enjoy it just as much. <laughs> we also asked it to um, explain transfer agency in the voice of a pirate, which gave incredible results. So um, if you haven't played around with uh, this, I urge you to do so. It's great fun. But how are you both anyway? I, uh, I heard you met up without me. Yeah, we're yep. good. Yeah, last week was nice. Though it was winter, which was unexpected. We were in lots a, of snow. A, lots of snow, yeah. Snow and ice and cold weather, which I hadn't really experienced in a while, but it was nice. Good. In Sweden. Yep. Post trade three sixty. Yeah, should have added good, that part. Good. Yeah, I've been to been to that event uh, a few years ago. They're they're really a good good team that run that. So, uh, which uh, which panels were we both kind of moderating or speaking on? Sean, you go first. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, it was, it was a real barn burner. No, I uh, so we I did the moderated panel on CCP recovery resolution, um, mm-hmm. sort of suggested changes and where does the industry think we are, and it takes on a little more urgency, isn't the right word, but sort of a little more relevancy in light of sort of some of the recent, you know, SCB and Credit Suisse, some of the recent tests of the post-GFC recovery and resolution framework in other parts um, has sort of brought a spotlight on what would happen if both CCP ran into trouble. So it was an interesting conversation. CCP funeral planning. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Virginia? Um, Yeah, I did too. So my first one was on my favorite topic, which is corporate governance. So it's not (laughs) chat about um, SRD2. Mm. Um, And uh, just talking about ESG regs as well, and the capital markets union and how that all plays together with people trying to get retail investors more active in Europe. Um, So that was one. And then the next one was about coopetition, which is a horrible term, but that was about uh, how asset services and fintechs can work better together. Um, So I just load a number of fintechs, some asset asset servicing people chatting about how they partner with each other. How can they work better together? I can't imagine. I mean, right now they're, they're working together. 
across the board, the asset services are pouring money into these these fintechs. Um, yeah. I guess I guess we're seeing. Was it a case of we're not seeing enough results from those partnerships? It was more of like managing expectations yeah. and treating it like a long term thing rather than a short term thing, and just making sure that you communicate with each other. I think there's obviously some a lot of challenges with fintechs at the moment because because Adora and things like that is making it harder to work with smaller providers. So there was a bit of chat about that and how there's a lot of pressure on onboarding and how onboarding takes a really long time yeah. um, comparative you know, to what it was about five or six years ago. So what, what has Dora done to make the, that process more difficult? I, it's just you have to look, you have to provide much more documentation. I think one of the, the fintech guys was saying that like it's gone up to, I don't know how many pages he said, or a couple of thousand pages of, for, for um, the odd, uh, you know, for the, what's it called? The documentation for due diligence to be up yeah. for onboarding, yeah. which is nuts. <laughs> wow. Incredible. It was already hard enough to get in the door. I mean, it's interesting. We're seeing, I think the progress is quite quick in some areas. Um, there's a couple of fintechs we work closely with, like Proximity and Sapphire mm-hmm. that are they're moving very quick. And then there's others that we've highlighted in the past year that have just had either partnerships kind of severed with, with some of the big custodians or, you know, have ceased to exist. And I guess it's kind of either succeed fast mm-hmm. or fail fast, right? That's true. A lot yeah. of the DLT platform providers have gone out of business, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, Sean, I'll cut you off. What were you saying? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think some of it's people made bets on DLT and eventually, you know, those bets come due. And I think the other challenge a lot of fintechs are facing, depending on how they're financed, is, you know, we're not in the zero interest rate world anymore. So they're sort of PE investors are a little more concerned about uh, ROI than they are about growth, um, which I think when you look, you know, you mentioned proximity and obviously that was spun out of an asset servicer. So that sort of has a sort of a utility-like function. So it has the backing of the industry, which makes its life infinitely easier because it's not particularly trying to eat anyone. I mean, it's disrupting some parts of the world, but it has a, you know, it has a, it it addresses a very specific niche. And that part of the panel really talked about, you know, working with like fintechs that address those niche areas so you can focus on other sort of core competencies. And I think that's probably a, a, a good model, but, you know, as we said, like due diligence and due diligence from a regulatory perspective is a door and operational resilience and banks themselves have incredibly hard onboarding these days. So, you know, I think that's going to be a challenge for any, you're a small fintech looking to get in and you don't have the benefit of a partnership or backing because, you know, these, a lot of these big universal banks back these fintechs as well. It will be a lot, it's just hard to sell your wares into asset servicing. Yeah. And do, do you think if there's kind of a, some economic trouble on the horizon, it might be seen as more of a luxury than a necessity? In a lot of areas, yeah, I yeah. expect, right? A lot of it, people don't want to spend money on those areas. So, I mean, and you know, if, if your onboarding is like a year and a half, <laughs> your right. business not, might not be around by that point. So, you know. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, not to be cynical, but that's sort of my thing. Like, <laughs> I think... Um, a lot of these fintechs, you know, is a way for, especially in the asset servicing side where I'm from, that to get investment in that in-house was almost impossible, but you can use fintech as a cool way to address an issue. But obviously it was never particularly a priority. So you will run into problems if, you know, budgets and economic economics turn against you. Yeah. Well, so our message here is keep marketing, get rid of the fintech <laughs> investments. That's, that's what I'm hearing from this. <laughs> um, 
So look, a lot, a lot of uh, developments, and uh, yeah, I feel like we're still not getting to my T plus one podcast because just life keeps getting in the way and things keep happening. But uh, you know, on the on the on the topic of, of AI, it's it's a it's a it's a hot topic at the moment, isn't it? Uh, with with the the rise of ChatGPT and the the kind of pressure on the, the people to not go too far into this because the <laughs> ramifications could be pretty uh, pretty intense but um as the podcast suggests there's always a thin reg angle um wh- what is it uh, at the moment you know the, the kind of over the regulation of, of ai in the financial markets um i don't know who wants to start i mean i can start if you want mm. i mean there, there are a lot of angles to it um i'd say a lot of the paranoia about it is about you know what kind of decisions should or i guess generative ai is one thing right so chat gpt is generative ai so <clears throat> it's very convincing when it's sort of lying. <laughs> it's yeah. one of the issues. So um, misleading information, if you're using it to put out marketing materials, that could be, you know, uh, in contravention to investor protection. There's also the angle of, you know, putting data into something, you know, it's processing data. So GDPR warning bells come off at that point. And it's also a relatively immature technology that is has got a lot of coding bias in it. Um, and, you know, the AI ethics side of things pings on that radar as well. So there's a lot of different angles to it from a reg, FinReg perspective, I'd say. Did I miss any, Sean? No, I think that covers it. I mean, I think I would say the only other thing you've seen a lot of the bigger banks, you know, noticeably, I think JP Morgan announced, a couple other banks have announced sort of some rule sets and slowdowns of using it. Because I think rightfully in a, when there's an innovation, especially in financial services, you're wary of how regulators will react. So for all those reasons, Virginie sort of highlighted, I think banks are a little gun shy about jumping right into using this technology if they don't know the rules of the road from a regulatory perspective. And they're also chastened a little bit by, you know, the billions of dollars that have been dished out in fines for stuff like using WhatsApp and data users. Mm -hmm. So they don't want to end up on the wrong side of the equation. So I think I think for all those reasons, you know, it's almost like there's no specific friend rang angle. So there's inherently a fit rang angle because there's no friend to deal with. Yeah. It's true. I mean, it's, it's, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because it sits in that sort of bracket where regulators get a bit nervous because it's, should they, what's it, they're seen as holding back regulation if they go against mm. it, but then they don't like it because um, it's, it's risky and there's lots of things that can go wrong with it. So it's kind of that line that we keep seeing the back and forth. I mean, God, crypto and DLT seem to be in the frame all the time. But this is another one where they're sort of wary of saying anything publicly, but then still put pressure on firms not to use it. Um, And and, and yeah, a lot of banks are banning it now. Central Bank of Ireland, I think, the other week as well, uh, just in time for St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. No, I think it's like, I think crypto is probably a good analogy in that, there's no specific rule set for it. So regulators would say the exist, they're nervous if the existing rule set, GDPR, investor protection, you know, market abuse, all that stuff covers the use of it. And it's all like, I mean, new in a relative sense, you know, sort of slowly and then all at once it's appeared. And I think everyone's caught a little flat foot on what the implications could be. So rightfully nervous um, about what the implications are. And it's also, as Virginia said, it's being road tested in like real time, like it's far from like mature technology. I mean, I mean, I made a joke this morning on Twitter that I, I honestly think the real AI boom is going to be in lawyers suing AI firms for breaking various copyright <laughs> and intellectual property laws. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I looked into it because um, 
you know, we, we, out of interest, you just think, well, as a publisher, what is the, yeah, what is the IP on, on this stuff? And obviously it's mm-hmm. not, you know, the output isn't the IP of, of anyone because it's just an automated machine, right? It's like the, uh, the, the, the monkey in the jungle that took that selfie, right? It was no one's IP because it's <laughs> only a, a human can own it. But the, yeah, what it warned against is you, know, you don't know where that information is coming from because it's just plucking it from the internet. So that could be, it could be taken, you could be plagiarizing accidentally without knowing because you don't know where it's coming right. from. So, yeah. That, the that also, there's also the them. angle with generative AI, though. They're using it for programming, which is another really scary thing. Um, and I don't think everybody really realizes that. They think of it in the marketing sense, but there's, there are also some, some people are using it to shortcut coding. So God knows what you're putting into that code if it's pulling it from <laughs> bits are all around the all, all around the internet. There could be all kinds of nasty things embedded in it if you do that. Yeah, exactly. Well, look, we've got we've got a lot to get to today. So, um, Virginia, I know that you mentioned something being close to your heart earlier. Uh, I always thought uh, it would be kind of operational resilience or. Uh, um, T plus one, so maybe that's the most close. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot close your heart. But um, one is that the one of the uh, the SEC has just announced it's kind of changing over to paperless filing, and Esma has got that as as part of its uh, subtech strategy. Um, so I'm, I'm sure that uh, pleased you to see that. Yeah, I mean, finally moving away from paper. Who'd have thought it? I mean, that's that's revolutionary, isn't it? I mean, next next they'll be saying they're changing the candles for electric lights or something <laughs> like that. But um, it, it is good to see it in terms of filing because obviously that process is is painful. Um, it, just lots of areas that need modernisation in all areas. You know, when it comes to to Finreg, um, that there are many many other areas that need to improve too. And I, I think tax is another one that people kept talking to me. That is not close to my heart. I must no. admit, but um, tax law is also very paper-based. But this is, you know, this is progress in the issuer space. So it's definitely important to see that going on. Um, and it was interesting looking at the, because um, what's it, Esma had some sort of um, sub-tech away day um, with the ECB, and they were posting pictures and of, of some of the slides that they were discussing. And, and funny enough, they didn't have anything to do with cybersecurity in it. So given that they're all talking about digital operational resilience and, um, cyber crime and you know preventing all of this stuff. They didn't have anything in their priorities for subtech around that, which is seems like that's a bit of an error, right? Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Paperlessness it's, there, but not not cyber crime. It's a little bit of a Dora for thee, but not for me sort of approach, which is an interesting strategy. <laughs> exactly. And to, to round off the, the SET topics, um, Sean, I know something close to your heart is the yeah, impending expiration of the SEC unbundling relief. So what's what's going on there? Yeah, so I just this is one of those issues because the SEC, we talk, every time we talk, we're always talking about the SEC and crypto. But, you know, as we mentioned a couple episodes ago, the SEC is doing a lot. And this is sort of action by no action almost. So in June, the... The act, the no action relief for um, MIFID two unbundling expires, uh, and essentially, would it mean it will put U.S. As- base asset managers uh, with European operations in position where they can't necessarily uh, sort of pay directly uh, for research because soft dollars mm-hmm. is sort of more the norm in the marketplace. So, SIFMA has released a couple of letters pointing out this is the no action letter should be extended. Um, there's no real indication from the SEC that they're likely to 
um, to do that. But it, I think it will become a bigger issue. It's one of those issues that everyone's kind of ignoring and kind of hoping gets resolved somehow, but um, may not be. So in, in lots of firms, you know, there are some global firms who have set up sort of global research policies essentially based out, off of MIFID two and unbundling who would run into some real, would have to think, rethink those procedures. So I think it could be really disruptive um, if or if and when the, the no action expires in June. So I think as it gets a little closer, we'll probably hear a lot, a little more noise about it, um, generally speaking. Yeah. Uh, speaking of no action, I, uh, I included your, both your comments on C plus one from the last uh, podcast episode in a feature I wrote on C plus one. Um, I've been trying to get people to say for ages that the, the May deadline won't actually happen. Uh, it'll be September. And all I needed to do was run a podcast and then use both your quotes. So thanks for that. Um, <laughs> uh, just to wrap up the rest of the news, uh, Virginia, there was the DLT pilot launch last week. Um, is it worth just touching on that? Maybe even explaining what it is for anyone that doesn't know? Yeah, I mean, well, it's the bonfire of the vanities, isn't it? Um in terms of the the aims of it, uh, ESMA decided. Well, ESMA and the EU level, uh, all of the EU level bodies, um, are keen to catch up to where you know mass was about five or six years ago, and every other regulator that's been looking at this, um, to, around just allowing a sandbox for experimentation and pilot programs around DLT, and the, and the sort of the parameters for it are trading and settlement systems. Now, I don't know why they included trading, because who the hell wants to use DLT for trading, <laughs> I don't know. Um, largely because it's going to be so... I mean, why? I, I guess there's always been talk about slowing down or putting in gates for how fast you trade. But I mean, sure, surely you don't want to move from, you know, sub-microseconds to, you know, five or ten minutes. Um, I don't think that's going to be particularly feasible, let alone um, addressing the comments around, you know, from the ASX about... Um, how uh, much uh, scalability there is in the DLT platform. So hopefully this this six-year program um, that launched last week will help people understand what the limitations of DLT are and where it's fit to be implemented, if anywhere. Um, but that's sort of the intent of it, is just to give a safe space um, for experimentation that where the regulator can't whack you for, for doing something. Yeah, cool. Anything to add on that, Sean? I mean, I could I could make fun of it a little bit, but I suppose. I <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, moving on. Uh, one one thing, you know, I think it's good for us to kind of tick off all the major things that are happening and, and explore the FinReg angles of, of of said major financial market events. I think that I really think there's something about March. By the way, if you look back at every March for the last kind of four years, oh, something major happens. Um, maybe it's one of those things where there's always a trend there if you, if you look hard enough for it. But uh, COVID, it's the uh, Ides, John. It's the Ides. <laughs> it's the what, sorry? <laughs> the Ides of March. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, Credit Suisse and UBS. I mean, uh, firstly, thanks, regulators, for doing that on a Sunday evening. Uh, Mother's Day, I think it was as well, um, which, which meant I, I had to cover the story. But, you know, huge market going on but what are the what's the finreg angle of this sean um i'm, I'm sure there's a few but what what kind of jumps out to you that, that we should yeah. be talking about i mean i think the the most i mean the big picture finreg angle from it uh probably is sort of some of the underlying assumptions around and sort of rules of engagement that were agreed post financial crisis around how banks and major banks would be 
sort of resolved and wound down were sort of ignored um, in the case of Credit Suisse as they sort of were hastily, a, a shotgun wedding was arranged with UBS. Um, and similar to how, you know, the Treasury and the Fed ignored the, some of the rules to s- sort of salvage the SVP situation, the, the result was slightly different. So I think one of the, you know, one of the um, takeaways, I think you're seeing discussion now where it leads to, I don't know, is, you know, do we need to relook at some of these, all these rules around sort of resolution um, of firms in the event of trouble. And this sort of actually links tangentially to the CCP category, uh, conversation we had in Stockholm about, about their resolution as well. You know, could we reasonably expect the resolution plans to be enacted as they're conceived in the heat of the moment? And I think there's a lot of people who would say, you know, in some ways there is no FinReg in a foxhole. And when you're faced, faced with a, what it seems like a dire situation, policymakers are going to do what they need to do to keep the system going. So I think, you know, what are the ramifications of that? I think we will need to wait and see. And then I think the other more tangible one is anytime something like this happens, be it SCB, Credit Suisse, Signature in the US, there's going to be a demand for more reporting. That's just the default of policy. Mm. But I think there will be some questions raised about arguably for all those institutions, regulators had all the information they needed about what was happening. And the supervisors arguably didn't act as quickly as they could have. So, you know, really what are the, what is the point of this, this reporting people are getting if it's not driving decision-making and these firms are still sort of careening towards the abyss regardless. So I think there'll be a lot of debate around that about how much new reporting is needed and what are regulators doing with that reporting that they're getting. I mean, essentially, it's the, the job of the regulators to establish confidence and trust in the market, right? I mean, that's that's essentially their role. And it's not very easy to do. <laughs> I think we just that's just highlighting it, right? Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, like, I mean, it's easy to be critical. Um, but I think in the, in the moment, you know, decisions have to be made because, you know, I never thought this kerfuffle was, you know, the next GFC or real banking crisis. But, you know, you do want to stem any threat of that. So obviously regulators will do whatever they can to to do that. So it just raises questions around that. And it's interesting because it, it reminded me of, you know, five, eight, eight, ten years ago, a lot of some very some Asian countries really questioned the whole underlying thesis that you shouldn't nationalize banks in the event of a crisis because culturally they just didn't care if they did it or not. And that to them seemed like the easiest solution. So it's just sort of interesting that when it comes to it, maybe that isn't the worst outcome. So I think you might see some of that debate, but that would be very much at a FSB level. Anything else to add, Virginia? I mean, yeah, it's it's just striking that you can't regulate panic. <laughs> I mean, it's a lot of these things yeah. and, and some of the some of these things just show you how how it's the humans at the end of the day that sort of dictate markets, right? And it's all made up, right? If you look at it really logically and think about it, take a step away from the industry. A lot of this stuff is just caused by human nature. Um, and you can have as much data as you want on hand, but it's not going to stop people panicking or making the wrong decisions. Or, you know, uh, during a stress, people just act irrationally sometimes, yeah. um, regulators included. So uh, I don't yes. know. How do you get rid of that? I don't know. But yeah, I think that's fair. I think, I mean, to be clear, like, you can't unrun a bank. And so like if a bank run, and we don't see them that often, but if it happens, 
it's really hard to stop. And so the rules are a lot to make sure that that run doesn't cause larger issues and doesn't create, you know, sort of contagion to other, to the system, which, you know, largely was contained. So I, I think if you wanted to give them credit, if you were so inclined, you could say, you know, that that's really the goal in that situation, but you know, you can't stop money from leaving. And, and that one thing, I think the other thing we almost certainly will be talking about in the next few months is that in the U.S. you're seeing a lot of deposit flight into money market funds, and you've already seen Janet Yellen sort of raise sort of the alarm again about money market funds being sort of potentially systemically risky. Um, so I think there will be a, a renewed focus on the SEC, and to a lesser extent, ESMA uh, sort of reworking of the money market rules um, as they continue to drain deposits from the banking industry. Mm. You mentioned credit to regulators as if we don't do it. Sure. Are we, are we an anti-regulation podcast? Is that how it's coming across? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I just, in case any are listening, I, you know, I just want to make sure they know I, I, I don't, I don't always criticize them. <laughs> <laughs> keeping that, keeping those job offers uh, on the table. Later, I'm sure, for, uh, SEC chair. <laughs> I mean, in case it comes up in congressional testimony, I can't, I can't have it said that I was anti-regulator. <laughs> also the more good things we say the more likeliness is we get them on the podcast eventually which is the you know the ultimate goal of course um conscious conscious that we're veering towards the 30 minute mark um and based on reader feedback that we should keep it under that i'm gonna wrap it up there uh next time will be the t plus one podcast i i promise um virginia they haven't asked you to do the cyboss t plus one panel yet have they not yet, not yet. No, I'm doing a, I'm doing a LinkedIn thing um, on T plus one, like right. a LinkedIn live thing next month. Okay. I think. Ooh, very yeah, cool. So, yeah. I'm, I'm still waiting to see who's going to moderate it. They're going to ask you, me, or maybe Barney <laughs> Nelson from the Value Exchange. And if there's anyone else, I'll be shocked. But uh, it's uh, there's, there should be a crown for whoever gets the, the nod there. Um, but uh, <laughs> outside of what you've already mentioned, uh, Virginia, what else are you working on at the moment? Um, I'm doing a big piece of work on um, proxy voting, in fact, okay. again, with the governance side. And I'm also, I've am also i also just put something out on operational resilience. So um, that's up on the site now, uh, looking at you know, operational outages and things like that, uh, tracking those, whether they're caused by war, famine, or you know, weather, weather or cybersecurity issues. Super. And Sean, what are you up to and uh, where can everyone find your thoughts? Yeah, um, as always, people can follow me on Twitter at SMTuffy um, to see my latest musings on various things. Or if FinRig memes are your thing, uh, you can check out uh, FinRig memes on Instagram uh, for nothing but unfiltered FinRig memes. (laughs) Brilliant. Um, And with that, we come to the end of our podcast on financial regulation. Our heartfelt thanks go out to our guests, Virginia and Sean, for sharing their extensive knowledge and experience in the field of financial regulation with us today. It is clear that financial regulation is a complex and ever-evolving topic, and our guests have shed light on some of the critical challenges and opportunities facing regulators and financial institutions alike. From ensuring transparency and fairness to talking systematic risks and protecting customers, FinReg plays a vital role in safeguarding the health and stability of the financial system. Thank you once again to Virginia and Sean and to all our listeners for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of our financial regulation podcast. I wish it said FinReg and learned something new. Stay safe, stay informed, and join us again next time. (laughs) Thanks, both. Fantastic. (laughs) You were listening to There's Always a FinReg Angle podcast from Global Custodian. 
Stream on Google and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or catch up wherever you get your podcasts from.